From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 16th. Today, demands for change after the death of Dante Wright and the defense of Officer Derek Chauvin. So what is happening right now in Brooklyn Center? Well, really, there's two different things going on here. I mean, the first thing that has been going on throughout the Minneapolis uh, Twin Cities region for a number of weeks has been the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer who was accused of murdering George Floyd last year. Tim Craig is a national correspondent for The Post. He's been reporting from Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis. That has left this entire region on edge as they wait for a verdict. And people are sort of fearful here about the possibility that there could be even widespread civil unrest or rioting or violence if the trial, you know, results in an acquittal of the officer. At the same time, despite all that anxiety and tension here, over the weekend, there was this new fresh incident where a police officer in Brooklyn Center shot an unarmed black man, 20 years old, named Dante Wright. Police have said they stopped Wright because he had expired registration tags. Then they realized that there was a warrant out for Wright's arrest. They tried to arrest him, Wright struggled, and former officer Kim Potter shot him in the chest. Police say that she thought she'd reach for her taser and not her gun. She has since resigned and has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. That touched off even more anxiety and anger, really, here that this could occur and how the, a police department that is just on the border of Minneapolis that saw the pain and the horror and the, the feeling of tragedy that the community suffered last year during the George Floyd incident, how they allowed that to happen again. So there's been several more nights of rioting and protests this week. People are scared and people are sort of anxious. They want to move on, but they keep being reminded of the painful lessons that they experienced in this community last year when the George Floyd matter erupted throughout the region. So for the people that you've been talking to, what connection do they draw between their own experiences and what happened to Dante Wright? They're not surprised in some way. I mean, yes, they're surprised because everyone and I think the nation is surprised that an officer could mistake a gun for their taser, as we know was the case in this instance. I think that's surprising. But I don't think they're surprised that the police allowed themselves to be put in a position where such a confrontation was even possible. So I, I get the sense that people sort of expected that the police were being, you know, fairly aggressive in their decisions about who they pull over. And of course, many people believe that those decisions are also influenced by the color of the skin of the people who are behind the wheel. The people that you've talked to, do they seem to believe that what happened to Dante Wright was in fact an accident? That this was just like someone who meant to... No. to they don't. And this is both community members and also, frankly, Dante Wright's family members and their attorneys... They all say the same thing, that this is not an accident. And what a lot of people also point out, for those who have seen the video, is it wasn't like this was a split-second decision of her pulling out the 
gun and firing. And they sort of make the assessment that is, you know, how can you make this mistake knowing that you're holding that weapon for so long, pointed at the the, um, suspect or the individual. So they just don't buy that it was was an accident. They don't buy that a 25-year veteran of the force could make a mistake like that or or have an accident like that. They think that there's something else going on here. So tell me more about the police department in Brooklyn Center. It's a relatively small force because the city itself is relatively small. It's 30,000 residents, um, and they have a police force of about 49 officers, I believe. You know, it's been kind of controversial here is that none of the officers live in the community. They all live somewhere else. Hmm. Why, Why is that? Well, I don't think it's necessarily that uncommon. I think in a lot of cities, even, you know, most of the police officers do not live in the city. They commute into the city. I think if you go to Washington, D.C., for instance, I I believe many officers in Washington, D.C. probably live in Maryland or Virginia or even as far away as West Virginia. So it's it's not totally uncommon. But to advocates and activists, it kind of just shows you how disconnected police departments can become from their community. These people are not living there. They're coming in. And it's very easy then for activists to say, or even residents to say they do their jobs more as kind of an occupying force than as a part of the community. This is not new, but it's been a fairly controversial aspect of policing for a long time. And the other issue is just a general lack of diversity. We don't have the exact numbers because they have not given it to us, but the mayor has said that very few of the officers are black or even minorities. So in a city that's now 50% persons of color, to have such a low number of diverse officers in your police force, that also raises questions and concern about has the city been doing everything that it could be to recruiting a police force that looks like the community that they are trying to protect and serve. And as people are out protesting, how are police responding, especially considering the fact that Minneapolis nearby has had a pretty checkered recent history with responding to demonstrators and protesters. Is there a sense that police here have a better handle on what is and is not an appropriate response? One, there's there's a very robust and large law enforcement presence, because frankly, there was already going to be a very large law enforcement presence in this region anyways, because people are preparing for the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial. So many of those resources were here. There are National Guardsmen here. There are state troopers here. There are sheriff's deputies here. They are in very heavily armed vehicles. They are surrounding the police station where the protests have taken place. And they do, when curfew is you know, implemented, which has usually been about between 7 and 10 o'clock, they will move in and disperse the crowds. Firing chemical irritant gas and also firing what are commonly referred to as rubber bullets. And they're making arrests. They are making arrests of people who are violating the curfew. So I think the law enforcement community here is really trying to not allow this to spread out of either geographically as far as it did last summer or, you know, the intensity of the protest through spread as far as it did last summer. It seems to be working pretty fine this week. But again, there's a lot of attention here about what will happen next week or the week after if the Derek Chauvin trial results in an acquittal or hung jury. Tim Craig is a reporter for The Post in Brooklyn Center. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. 
So what have we seen in the past week of the Derek Chauvin trial? Essentially, prosecutors wrapped up their case and then we turned to Derek Chauvin's defense and to everyone's surprise, it only lasted two days. Holly Bailey is a national reporter for The Post. We had been expecting it to be shorter than the prosecution case, which had been about two weeks and had about three dozen witnesses. But I don't think anybody anticipated how short it would be. Eric Nelson, who is Chauvin's defense attorney, wrapped the case just after two days and about seven witnesses. Eric Nelson, from the get-go, told the jury in his opening statements that George Floyd did not die because of his client's knee, that he came to that scene um, and had drugs in his system and had previous health issues. The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. And that's what they've really been trying to point to, that Floyd died of, of those factors, not the restraint that Derek Chauvin put on him. And who were the witnesses and experts that they brought to help support that argument? Essentially, what Eric Nelson did, and it was kind of a case that wasn't completely clear at times. Hmm. He did touch on some of the things that we knew he would touch on. He brought forth body camera video of this past 2019 incident where George Floyd was arrested by Minneapolis police, though he was very limited on what he could say about it. And the backstory was that George Floyd was pulled over during a traffic stop on a tip that people in the car had drugs in the car, but he wasn't allowed to tell the jury that. And so the jury, as the defense case began, he called a former Minneapolis police officer who had arrested George Floyd that day and brought him to the stand and he told the jury about pulling him from the car. And then he just showed this video, this clip of, I think it was about a minute and 45 seconds of George Floyd being screamed at by police officers. Keep your hands where I can, can see them. Okay, put them up on the dash. Put them on the dash. I'm not going to shoot you. Put your hands on the dash. One of the police officers, Scott Creighton, who was testifying, had a gun, pulled him out of the car. And it was just this really chaotic scene. And we see George Floyd get out of the car after a moment, and he's handcuffed, and that was it. And he wanted to sort of try to to imply to the jury that George Floyd has the pattern of this. Hmm. But prosecutors really kind of used this to, you know, hammer home that George Floyd was being screamed at by officers, but was cooperative, and then he didn't die in this incident. Hmm. And Mr. Floyd didn't drop dead while you were interacting with him, correct? No. Thank you. Nothing further. Anything further? And then we had seen a lot of witnesses from prosecutors who were expert witnesses or medical professionals, people who could speak to what was happening biologically to George Floyd. Did the defense offer any witnesses that countered that? 
They tried. Um, they brought forth two experts. Um, was a use of force expert um, named Barry Broad, who is a former police officer from California who now lives in Montana and has kind of a practice going around testifying and in trials involving police officers. He testified that he didn't think that Derek Chauvin had used excessive force or deadly force. I felt that that level of resistance exhibited by Mr. Floyd justified the officers in higher levels use of force that they chose not to select. And then he kind of tried to dispute even that the prone position, which is when someone is held face down on the street, that that was even dangerous. Did the use of force then continue after uh, Mr. Floyd was restrained on the ground? I don't consider a prone control as a use of force. The prosecution just kind of had a field day with that. Regardless of the officer's intent, if this act that we're looking at here in Exhibit 17 could produce pain, would you agree that what we're seeing here is a use of force? Shown in this picture, that could be a use of force. Okay. It kind of backfired, I think, for the defense because prosecutors were able to show this really damaging body camera video of Derek Chauvin atop George Floyd, the man moaning and trying to grasp for breath with his hands and and asking this expert to sort of testify, you don't think this is force mm. and you don't think this is deadly force and you don't think this is dangerous and you don't think George Floyd is in pain, seemed to backfire in some ways with the defense. The jurors, you know, we know from reporters that they were in the courtroom that they weren't taking a lot of notes during Barry Broad's hmm. testimony, and they seemed at times a little bit bored, <laughs> but they were riveted in times when the prosecution was really going after him. Hmm. So do you get a sense that there was enough of this counter-testimony from the defense to at least confuse or make jurors feel that the situation was more complicated than what prosecutors had laid out, that yes, it was the knee, but maybe it was other factors as well? I think that's what the, the goal was, obviously. And there was another expert that testified, Dr. David Fowler, who used to be the medical examiner for the state of Maryland, who got on the stand and again, really contradicted all the testimony we've heard from this litany of medical experts that prosecutors brought to the stand. In terms of the placement of Officer Chauvin's, excuse me, uh, knee to Mr. Floyd. Is it your opinion that Mr. Chauvin's knee in any way impacted the structures of Mr. Floyd's neck? No, it did not. None of the vital structures um, were in the area where the knee appeared to be from the videos. And he raised a completely different theory that we, what we'd heard in court before that possibly George Floyd had died in part because of carbon monoxide poisoning because he was positioned mm. next to the squad car, next to the tailpipe. There is exposure to a vehicle exhaust, so potentially carbon monoxide poisoning, or at least an effect from increased carbon monoxide in his bloodstream. But then again, it was just incredibly damaging because prosecutors got him to admit that he didn't really know if the car was on and they were pointing out that it was a hybrid vehicle that's not always running. Mm. And so it was just really hard to know if there were these kernels of doubt, if they really got in deep with the jury or not. We know that during that testimony, again, some jurors even fell asleep hmm. because they just were restless and 
And so it's just really hard to know. I mean, again, Derek Chauvin's defense only needs one juror to say, I, I don't think that he caused George Floyd's death. That's all they need. And so I, I think that's what the defense is hoping, that, that just one person will agree with their theory of the case. And one of the big questions that we had going into this case was whether Derek Chauvin himself was going to take the stand and testify. But he didn't do that. Why not? There was intense speculation about whether Derek Chauvin would testify. I mean, in the lead up to this, you know, some people said, oh, there's no way. But after just weeks of really, really damaging testimony and especially really emotional testimony where you had eyewitnesses, young girls, teenage girls who were describing the cold look on his face and the fear they felt from what they saw of him on the street that day. You had to wonder if if there was just some way that Derek Chauvin could get on the stand and kind of contradict that or at least show some remorse and earn some sympathy for the jury. And so right up until the last minute, just no one really knew what was going to happen. Even prosecutors didn't. And they were preparing to do cross-examination on him because it just it was just totally unknown. But this was all put to rest on Thursday morning. Right before the jury was brought in, Eric Nelson indicated that he was planning to rest his case. And then he turned to Derek Chauvin, who removed his face mask. And what was this really dramatic moment? inside the courtroom, again, without the jury being there. Mr. Chauvin, uh, you and I have had several discussions throughout the course of my representation of you relevant to your right to testify or to choose to remain silent, correct? That's correct. And Eric Nelson recounted the long conversations they'd had about whether he should testify going back and forth. And and Derek Chauvin nodded and even smiled at, at some of this recollection, acknowledging that they'd had this intense back and forth about whether he should testify. Mm. And then finally, he turned to the judge and said that he was going to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And um, have you made a decision uh, today whether you intend to testify or whether you intend to invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. And the judge questioned him a a little bit more on this, and that was that. Hmm. So then what is going to happen in the case next? Judge Cahill recessed the case Thursday afternoon and will bring the jury back on Monday morning. And he's informed them to pack a bag because now they're going to be sequestered to consider this verdict. What we're expecting is that Monday morning there will be closing arguments prosecutors will, you know, give a statement and probably show this this video of Derek Chauvin atop George Floyd again. Jerry Blackwell, in the opening statements, told the jurors, just believe your eyes, believe what you're seeing. This is murder. And I imagine we're going to hear some re- recollection or repeating of that. And then Eric Nelson is going to get up and say, you know, what his argument has been, that George Floyd, you know, had drugs in his system and had existing health issues and that Derek Chauvin did as he was trained and was following policy. We don't know, you know, what he'll say beyond that. I mean, he's really given us no hints and has shed no further light within his case. I think 
It has struck me and a lot of people that even during the course of this case, we have seen two other high-profile shootings of people by police officers, Dante Wright, of course, outside of Minneapolis, and also now the release of a a body cam footage of a 13-year-old boy named Adam Toledo getting killed by a police officer. And it feels like many of us are looking at the Derek Chauvin case almost as a litmus test of where we are on holding police accountable. But in some ways, this case is also very different from the types of shootings that we see around the country. So I guess I wonder if you think that the outcome of the Chauvin trial will say something bigger about police accountability in America right now, or if it's too specific to these circumstances to really be emblematic of of the types of killings that we see around the country? I think it is going to be a litmus test, not just for police accountability, but for what this racial reckoning that we've seen since George Floyd's death last summer means in America. You know, it is a different case. But what I think the common theme of on this is police brutality. And I think what a lot of people hope this case will do is just to take a broader look at policing in general, that it isn't just, you know, police shooting people. It's how they even look at them, target them for arrest or how they even what even leads to these situations. I mean, again, was it appropriate for these officers to restrain this man the way they did again for a fake $20 bill? And that's a theme also that you've heard in the Dante Wright case. So I think it's just what what people are hoping this case will do is just, you know, examine more broadly the policing practices in America, especially as they're targeting people of color. Holly Bailey is a national reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rena Flores and Ted Muldoon. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Rena is our senior producer. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted, who composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Emma Talkoff and Sabby Robinson are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.